Welcome to the 24-hour conference on global organised crime podcast from the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. The 24-hour conference on global organised crime took place online in November 2020 and was organised by the European Consortium of Political Research Standing Group, the Centre for Information and Research on Organised Crime, the International Association for the Study of Organised Crime and the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organised Crime. Hundreds of academics, researchers, journalists and others from around the world gathered together to present and discuss the latest research in organised crime. We've selected just 14 of them for this podcast series. But I would encourage you to head over to the website oc24.globalinitiative.net where you can find recordings of other sessions. In this episode, you'll hear the session Sports and Organised Crime. Hello, welcome everyone. Uh, Thank you for joining us today. Uh, I know many of you have been sitting on potentially since the beginning of the conference, so uh, you're very familiar with this platform and the conference. Uh, My name is Christina Bain, and I am a visiting researcher at the Center for the Study of Europe uh, at Boston University's uh, Party School of Global Studies here in the United States. And I want to welcome all of you to our panel today on sports and organized crime. Uh, It's great to see so many familiar faces. I know we have some actually some people from Massachusetts who are joining today. So thrilled to see you. And uh, we have a great lineup of, of panelists. And I want to thank so much to all the co-hosts who put together this extraordinary conference that's never been done before, Uh, 24 hours of transnational organized crime. I I know I'm really excited, and I know many of you are as well. So, uh, so many different sessions and such rich content. We're so lucky to have had this conference uh, put together that we can join. So, Thank you again to all the conference organizers. I know there's many hosts, so thank you for all the work that you've done. Uh, So with that, I just want to go over, for those of you who haven't been in all the sessions, just some technical uh, just a technical uh, piece in terms of how this conference, how this session is going to run. Uh, you're going to hear three presentations, three different perspectives on sports and organized crime. And after each presenter um, speaks, we're going to go to the next presenter. And then finally, after the third presenter speaks, we're going to take questions and answers from the audience. If you have a question, do send it to the chat box. Um, You'll see the chat box located in the middle part of your screen um, at the bottom. Uh, And if you're having any technical challenges, any experiences that, um, you know, seem, you know, wrong in terms of the the technical piece, just do send a message to the host at the the chat box and um, someone will get back to you with fixing any uh, any issues. We are recording this session today. So to make you aware that um, this will be available uh, for you to view later as um, for those who couldn't make it. Uh, So so with that, um, I want to introduce the topic of sports and organized crime. I will say that first of all, I am I am I work in human trafficking and modern slavery, uh, and look at different uh, ways organized crime intersects with human trafficking, but also other forms of illicit trade. Uh, a few years ago, I actually did a webinar with the Global Initiative Against Transnational Organized Crime, one of the co-hosts here today, on sports and human trafficking. And we had a very robust discussion about the role of um, different illicit networks with football clubs, and particularly in the football sector, football um, industry, uh, recruiting for labor trafficking. You could also have sexual abuse. Uh, We also looked at the role of major sports events and how trafficking happens around sports events, particularly with sexual trafficking. So this is an issue that I'm very interested in. And uh, you're going to hear three different perspectives uh, related to other forms of um, transnational organized crime. We're not going to be talking specifically about human trafficking today, but uh, other forms of uh, organized crime. So now I have the pleasure of introducing Dr. Tonya uh, Spoppins. 
who is a professor of criminology at Tilburg University. Uh, Tonya is a full professor of criminology of the Department of Criminal Law at Tilburg University since 2011. He has received his PhD in criminology in 2006. Since the early 1990s, uh, he has done extensive empirical research on organized crime and its containment and on international law enforcement cooperation. His second main topic of research is environmental crime. And we've actually got many panels um, on environmental crime uh, as part of this conference uh, uh, going on today. Uh, his empirical work includes trafficking and illicit firearms, synthetic drug productions, large-scale cannabis cultivation, illegal gambling, and max fiction, match fixing, and trafficking in waste and wildlife. So he is going to present on criminal investments in local football clubs. Uh, Dr. Spoppin, the floor is yours. Thank you. Um, yes, I uh, will uh, briefly talk about uh, criminal sponsors of local football clubs in the Netherlands, but I would like to start with a, uh, a bit more broader perspective, um, which we used in uh, several studies, and that's about uh, uh, criminals actually engaging in philanthropical activity. Um, so um, we actually started this study of um, uh, criminals involved in uh, local football clubs when we looked at uh, criminals involved in philanthropic activities. And actually, there's a lot of examples, uh, uh, but uh, little uh, systematic uh, research. So uh, a philanthropical criminal could, for instance, be uh, Robin Hood, uh, the Cray twins who used uh, fundraising activities when they were short on cash. Uh, Pablo Escobar is a uh, very well-known uh, example who invested in social housing, also in sports clubs, in education, uh, but also the uh, favela gangs in uh, Rio de Janeiro who uh, provide some sort of social security in, uh, uh, in their neighborhoods. And we actually started with the question, well, is this happening in the Netherlands as well? And uh, we did a study in 2018, uh, which was rather broad on the philanthropical uh, side of crime. And we indeed uh, found that uh, uh, providing financial support to sports clubs, uh, cultural activities and fundraising activity was quite an important type of philanthropical uh, criminal activity. Uh, but they were also involved in charity foundations, uh, engaged in healthcare provision and uh, acted as uh, neighborhood uh, Corleone. So basically, uh, if you live in a uh, neighborhood which is uh, socially or economically deprived or uh, a closed subculture, there were always uh, criminals there who uh, would help uh, the local people if they were uh, having some financial problems and uh, gave them a job or uh, helped them with uh, with all sorts of uh, of all sorts of uh, problems they were experiencing. Um, so what kind of philanthropical criminals did we actually find? Well, uh, of course, persons who were involved in serious and organized crime, um, who were uh, sponsoring uh, sports clubs, but also used charities for money laundering, uh, neighborhood uh, Corleones, were involved in healthcare activities. We also saw outlaw motorcycle gangs um, who were also hanging around at uh, football clubs, uh, primarily to seek to improve their public image, but also to uh, find new recruits uh, amongst the football hooligans, uh, for instance. Uh, but also white-collar criminals were quite important. Uh, they used uh, the sponsoring of uh, charity activities to act advertise their business, uh, seek investments, and uh, um, establish connections with, uh, with local politicians, uh, which could also benefit uh, um, uh, their businesses. But in general, uh, the main reason why all of these uh, uh, criminals were involved in these kind of, activi of activities was to uh, be liked, uh, to be uh, uh, actually seen within their communities and uh, um, uh, uh, improve their uh, public image, uh, basically. So uh, getting involved in a sports club is not really something they did because they wanted to launder money or wanted to uh, actually make money. It was uh, all about uh, being, uh, well, improving their social image, uh, so to speak. 
Um, so how do we define these uh, philanthropic criminal activities? Well, basically as non-profit activities based, beneficial to society, which are wholly or partly financed with illegally acquired assets with the purpose of gaining status, uh, which was the main uh, point here, uh, but also to facilitate illegal activities or to obtain other types of advantages. And what we did this broad study of uh, philanthropic criminals, we discovered that about one in three Dutch municipalities had at least one example of a philanthropical criminal active within the uh, local uh, boundaries. And uh, the majority of these cases actually refer to uh, the sponsoring of uh, sports clubs and uh, social events. Um, in a study which was uh, actually a follow-up uh, of this uh, philanthropical uh, criminal activity when we specifically looked at uh, amateur sports clubs in the south of the Netherlands. Um, there was also a survey done by RTL News, a, um, uh, a, 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 a broadcasting company in the Netherlands, and this revealed that about 20% of amateur football clubs actually reported some signals of criminal infiltration within their clubs. So it's actually quite a uh, substantial uh, problem. Um, we recently completed a study uh, which is uh, not yet uh, being, uh, which has not yet been published, but uh, the results are uh, quite similar. But uh, the problem here is basically that, uh, of course, uh, a lot of people who are suspected of being involved in all sorts of criminal activities uh, do not have a criminal record actually tied upon their back. So it's uh, often within a sort of gray area. So people that raise suspicion, uh, there's uh, all sorts of talk going on that they might be involved in uh, criminal activities, but uh, it's often very difficult to actually uh, substantiate uh, substantiate these uh, these claims uh, because uh, they are not always uh, subject of uh, criminal investigation and they are not always uh, convicted while being involved in these uh, sports clubs. So basically, it's uh, a lot about um, uh, signals uh, which uh, may point at um, uh, criminal involvement in sports clubs. And uh, the most important are uh, uh, basically uh, all sorts of suspicious persons who are not members, but they hang around at the club. Uh, there's also uh, mention of verbal threats towards members of the board, uh, volunteers, other club members, uh, sponsors who wish to remain anonymous, uh, sponsors who want to contribute in cash only, uh, of course, in smaller communities, there's a lot of talk about uh, sponsors being active in criminal activities. But of course, uh, as I explained, there's no real proof of this. And uh, sponsors who demand uh, some influence on the uh, club's uh, policy. And uh, an important problem here is that uh, awareness amongst clubs is relatively low because uh, they all associate criminal infiltration basically with uh, with drug crimes, uh, which is, is of course quite a big problem in the Netherlands. Um, but in uh, the end, uh, a lot of these um, uh, criminal sponsors are actually white collar criminals. So they have businesses and they have all sorts of problems with um, um, uh, complying with uh, uh, regulatory laws. Uh, they have problems with administrative uh, authorities such as the uh, municipality. They have problems with the tax authority, but they are not uh, specifically associated with uh, what we could call uh, organized crime. So it's a bit of, um, uh, uh, less uh, perceived as a uh, problem by um, uh, board members of uh, amateur football clubs. And uh, of course, there are quite a lot of uh, risk factors involved here. So uh, basically all football clubs, uh, amateur sports clubs are often financially vulnerable. Um, uh, this, this is not really uh, relevant for amateur clubs, but uh, uh, the transfer market is uh, largely unregulated, uh, uh, which relates uh, more to the uh, professional sports. Uh, of course, there's a lot of unpredictability, irrational behavior of boards of uh, sports clubs. Uh, football is emotion in the end. 
but it's also an easy gateway to go in gaining social status. That's, of course, why uh, these philanthropical criminals are so uh, interested in uh, uh, sponsoring uh, sports clubs because basically everybody likes you when the club wins. And uh, it's, it's really uh, uh, a way of quickly gaining uh, status and respect within your lo local uh, community. Um, another problem is the vulnerability of players, uh, most of them coming from a poor background, uh, especially players who have not made it into professional football. Uh, they will uh, often uh, play on as amateurs and uh, uh, in the Netherlands uh, there's a lot of problems with uh, uh, players actually being paid under the table. So. Uh, Black money is uh, quite uh, a big problem. And of course, these philanthropical criminals are also uh, trying to um, uh, pay uh, the people who uh, are involved in this. And there's the uh, closed cultures. It's not just cycling. It's also football clubs. Um, uh, if they are confronted with criminal infiltration, the clubs actually tend to um, uh, try to solve their own problems and not to seek help of the uh, authorities. So finally, um, some ways of um, uh, how to promote resilience in amateur football, of course, uh, we don't really want the uh, boards of football clubs to become crime fighters, um, but we do want them to become aware and uh, usually some uh, relatively uh, low-key measures already prevent uh, a lot of problems. So uh, if you negotiate with a sponsor, never do it on your own, but always do it with uh, several members of the board. Uh, do not accept sponsoring in cash. Uh, do not be overly ambitious because a lot of problems actually stem from the fact that clubs want to um, uh, actually over... Uh, state um, had, uh, have ambitions to become more successful than the base of uh, members and players actually uh, affords. And uh, either uh, if, if you choose sponsors, choose large companies because they are basically uh, a lot uh, more uh, concerned about uh, public image or instead uh, use a lot of uh, small sponsors. So if you have one that is actually a uh, potential criminal, it's easier to actually say goodbye to this uh, sponsor. Um, I uh, will leave it uh, here and, um, well, uh, looking forward to your questions later on. Thank you so much, Dr. Sathens. That was fantastic. I, I think that we've got some great questions coming in and comments from your presentation. And I think this is a topic that clearly needs more awareness. Uh, and we can talk a bit more about that uh, perhaps in the discussion. So thank you so much. So now we're going to go to our third and final speaker. And again, I just want to remind you to send questions into the chat box and we'll get to them after uh, this last speaker presents. Uh, so thank you for everyone who's contributed so far for your questions and comments. So now I have the pleasure of introducing uh, Hans Nilan, who's a, a professor of criminology at Maastricht University. Uh, he is also at the, he's at the Faculty of Law at Maastricht University, located in the Netherlands. He is also chair of the Center for Information and Research on Organized Crime. Uh, he has conducted research and published extensively on a variety of criminological subjects, including drugs, corruption, fraud, organized crime, and corporate crime. His recent publications focus on sports and crime and on innovative strategies to prevent and contain serious forms of crime. He is going to be sharing with us the role of agents and brokers uh, in professional football. Uh, so Professor Nilan, uh, the floor is yours. Thank you very much, Christina. There is always, uh, well, there is a disadvantage being the last speaker because you already have to concentrate on two previous very interesting presentations. But I also have the advantage now that I can build a little bit upon some of the notions that they introduced. So it's interesting to see, and we can link things up later on as well. Well, one of the things, and maybe that's also one, um, I've, I've been researching the area of, of the, the football sector for a couple of years now. Um, for me, it was uh, interesting to see that there weren't that many criminologists actually trying to reveal what is going on in the sports sector, and there were, all kinds of signals and that's due to the fact if you look at 
the professional football industry, because that's what I will be mostly talking about. You see, of course, a huge volume. You see all kinds of crime opportunities uh, coming up, popping up, due to the fact that it's a very uh, a close-knit network, uh, relationship between club owners, agents. Um, so you see forms of collusion popping up based on, first of all, investigative journalism, because there weren't that many people looking into it until recently. But slowly by looking into it, and um, I've been publishing some articles in relation to the system, Roland, and I think that's an interesting thing, because we are colleagues in Maastricht, he was already referring to this idea of needlemen and needlemen, whether systems or sectors can be crime facilitated or crime coercive. Um, in this case, you could argue there are a lot of arguments that actually um, support the idea that the football sectors as such, they, they are, well, the system members are presented with extremely tempting conditions, uh, low risks, high incentives, huge opportunities. And we've seen in the past many, many examples, especially in relation to tax fraud, money laundering, and other irregularities uh, in relation to, to the sports sector. So it's quite uh, worthwhile looking into a little bit more. So what I'm trying to do right now, and during the short presentation, I will zoom in on some of the uh, most important individuals, and, and, and those are the agents. If you look at, for instance, um, the media snapshots of the last couple of years, um, the book on the, on the right is a very interesting book, and I think it has learned us a lot. Um, it's based on the information that was provided by a Portuguese whistleblower. As the football sector is such a closed system, it is very hard to get access to it and very hard to get confidential data from within. But a couple of years ago, there was suddenly a whistleblower who started sharing a lot of confidential information with journalists who published extensively on it. Those German guys, um, they published this book on it. Um, I think for those of you who are interested, this is really interesting stuff to read. And it, it showed a number of things that actually more and more, more cases are, are, are nowadays unraveled. Uh, and we, we learn more about processes because I think as criminologists for us, it's very interesting to use, as Roland Moulin just mentioned in relation to doping, you could also argue that it's very interesting to look, to use social network analysis, to look at all those networks involved in, for instance, transfers of football players. If we focus on that, who's involved, look at the agents that play a pivotal role in that respect, who are the club owners, the club managers, and you will first see very interesting patterns popping up. And it's, that is very interesting. And also using a form of crime script analysis. Look at step by step. If you go through the whole process of, of trying to unravel a transfer, who's involved, at what stage, it learns you a lot about the process as such. And it may help us also to understand the mechanisms within the sector more and more. Um, one of the things um, that, as I said, uh, I'm very much interested in right now is looking at transfers. If you go back to 1995, 25 years ago, I think in Europe, everybody was convinced at the time, hey, we had the Bosman case, it was very, um, a very famous case, because essentially it meant until that moment, um, players were more or less slaves of clubs. They didn't have that much autonomy themselves to decide where they wanted to play. Uh, from that moment onwards, they had more autonomy, but what, what no one actually predicted at the time was that also due to the fact that the sport has so prof has professionalized and commercialized and there's so much money at stake that slowly they, become, they became slaves of, of, of agents. Uh, I heard Christina dis discuss at the start of the session the relationship between agents and human trafficking, which is also a very interesting aspect. And it shows also very strong dependency of players. And we are not talking primarily about the top players here, but mostly the professional players of a, of, of a little bit lower standard, but who are very much dependent on others uh, who may decide where they're going to play next year and what club at what level. 
So, and one of the things, of course, which makes it very prone and very interesting also for, for instance, money laundering purposes that players' values, you can play with it, you can manipulate with it. For us, and I think Football Leagues was one of the interesting uh, books that actually revealed that for many of us, when we read the papers and we know about a transfer of a, of a famous player, we read that this person has been sold for a specific sum of money. But it, it is very easy, actually, to start playing around with that and to also include other forms of, and in, if you, and this is what, what this um, Portuguese whistleblower actually has learned it, that many of those official transfer registrations and sums do not match what's going on in reality. That we see all kinds of money flows using all kinds of offshore uh, countries. And I would say it's no, con it's no coincidence that also based on the, uh, the, the, the things that the Portuguese whistleblower has revealed, is that it has led, for instance, to a number of uh, cases in Spain mostly related to tax fraud, but that nowadays Ronaldo, Messi, Modric, many others, they have been convicted by the Spanish authorities to, because they had to, well, officially, um, Messi is, is, is convicted for two, to two years imprisonment, but well, in Spain they have a system that you do not have to go to prison when it's two years or less, so he could, he got away with a, with a huge fine. And the fascinating thing is that all those cases were actually originally revealed by whistleblowers and the Spanish authorities really started working with it. We see, if we look at the whole network as such, of course, there is an elite group of, of people. Um, you see, as I already mentioned, strong collusion between agents and clubs, and especially when you use social network analysis, slowly you may, it becomes clear, hey, it's interesting to see that not individual players are moving from one club to the other but we see whole groups of players being sold and club owners who control many clubs. For instance, there are club owners in England who control clubs in the Netherlands, in Belgium, in Germany. They have about 50 to 60 players and they are being sent around. And the question is, what is going on there? How it's being financed? Where's the money actually coming from? So there are a couple of things actually that we have to study more in detail, as I said, that is complicated. Nevertheless, it is a tempting thing. I think we are only at the start of, of doing this kind of thing. But it is a good thing, I would say, especially when we take into account all the possibilities that they have to hide what, what is actually going on. We've, we've learned about the Panama Papers and the Paradise Papers, and we learned that by using and abusing all kinds of corporate entities that you can play around, that you can... And we've seen... The, the names of players and major agents coming. Well, we, we've read about those people as well who have abused our systems, legitimate structures, abusing that for their criminal purposes. And slowly we become aware, and the football world as such has, is slowly becoming aware that, well, there, we, there are serious risks we have to take into account. The fascinating thing is that until recently, there wasn't hardly any attention paid by the national associations, by the international football associations, who actually was controlling specific clubs. So you can look at ownership of clubs. You can look at ownership of the players themselves. For a long time, there was this system of third-party ownership where groups of investors actually owned players. We have, we've seen the examples and the evidence of Mexican cartels involved in that kind of thing. We've seen third-party ownership by entities, money coming in from Malta and Cyprus, and it was, was completely unclear where the money was actually coming from. But many people believed, well, it's coming from Belarus, from other countries, and we are not so sure about whether this money has actually a legitimate background, a legitimate origin. So there is, there is much to be discussed and much to be unraveled. Um, so I think we have something to look to look forward to as criminologists if you're interested, like myself, in both organized crime and sports. And we know that those that is very much intertwined. And I think Transparbans already unraveled for many people who want to invest and who want to be there in the football industry, regardless whether it's at an amateur level or a professional level. But of course, when you're acting on a professional level, you get more publicity. 
Uh, and for many of those people, it's not only about the money. They may even lose some money, but they have plenty. And they have something, what they want is prestige. They want status. They want to be there. They want to be part of the, of the, of the world. And there aren't that many people actually asking difficult questions to them. But slowly, I see some awareness. We had an interesting case a couple of years ago where a Dutch bank suddenly decided, well, we do not want to finance the football industry anymore because we think it's a shady business. And they were relating to transfers. They were relating to ownership of clubs. They were relating to, um, well, they, 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 they were based on, I think, work of journalists and slowly as i said there are some criminologists including the three of us sitting here at the panel who who have shown some interest in this world and i think it's relevant to continue that also with international scholars so i would very much welcome others also to join and look at this at this what's going on in the football industry more from an international perspective because i think that's really that's that's really relevant well to wrap things up i would finally say something about um supervision and control, because who could actually do something about this kind of thing? And I would say what we always are inclined to say is look at especially public uh, authorities, law enforcement, but we do not see, of course, that many cases being prosecuted. Um, I would say the paradoxical thing, by the way, in relation to, to um, um, what has happened in the football industry that this Portuguese whistleblower I refer to, he is now being prosecuted in Portugal himself because of leaking confidential information. So you see also the power of the football industry as such, the moment they start putting pressure there. But I don't think we could expect too much for public law enforcement. Maybe we should have a look at, at the, the associations themselves, the clubs should be more aware of the risks they run. The moment that they invite everyone, for instance, agents, they know that with a, with a very dubious uh, reputation, um, if, for instance, a new person comes in and just want to buy the club. Um, it's rel relatively easy, as, well, at least in the Netherlands, to do that kind of thing. Uh, so we can come up with all kinds of thresholds, all kinds of barriers, I would say, from within, from within the football system. Also creating awareness amongst the people who are involved in, in this kind of thing. Because in the end, the moment that your sport is being controlled, mostly by criminals, I think we are in a serious situation. And I'm not saying, because indeed it's, 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 it's a great sport, we all love it, but what we've seen, also based on the analysis of the Financial Action Task Force, who did a risk analysis in this respect, we see there are quite a number of risks and that especially the agents play a pivotal role. And one of the things we could think of, and then I really finish, is to think, for instance, is it difficult to become an agent of a football player? Well, actually it's not. It's relatively easy. You can study, you have to register yourself officially, although there are still quite a number of agents working without an official registration, but it's condoned, it's allowed. So we are not very strict in that. So national associations, so many, many, the national associations, the international associations, they tend to look the other way. So this is something actually we should address. We should take more serious. I think, especially when it comes down to self-regulation, compliance systems, better whistleblowing systems. I think we all need it in the football industry to actually protect the beautiful sport of football. I'll finish with that. Thank you. Thank you so much, Professor Nealon. That was uh, really in-depth. And I think you shared a lot of um, aspects that weren't previously addressed. So I think uh, having you as the third presenter worked out perfectly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, so thank you. Uh, and I think we have a number of questions. We're now going to go into 20 minutes of uh, Q&A, uh, and then we'll end um, 15 minutes past the hour. So, uh, so with that, I know we had, a, we had some conversation about awareness, and I just wanted to uh, begin our discussion with talking more about how can we, uh, you know, as organized crime experts and academics and activists and criminologists, law enforcement, et cetera, um, uh, public officials work on spreading more awareness of this. We also had a couple of comments in the chat about how these networks really mirror legitimate business. And as we know, criminal networks are functioning like licit business. Uh, so how can we fight 
uh, this type of organized crime with potentially legitimate business? And then how does that work with awareness? And so I, I open that up to any of the panelists for, uh, for your comments. Anyone like to go first? Well, I will, but I was the last to speak, but very briefly, and I think Roland and Twande will follow. Uh, one of the things I think slowly, as I mentioned, as when I finished my short presentation, I refer to the fact that if you look at the, the, the actually the relevant players in the area, in, 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 the, in the sector of sports, I think are slowly wakening up. For instance, the example I gave in relation to the banks, when it comes down to the financing of sports, uh, but also when it comes down to, for instance, ownership of clubs, um, that both clubs, but also the associations sh should become aware. And we could come up, at least ask those clubs, but also uh, not to take everything for granted uh, and the association, but that you actually start asking of course, they are no detectives, they are not police investigators, but you can do a lot just by screening, just by looking at the internet, looking at the background, just raise some difficult questions, actually try maybe some screening mechanisms, trying to come up with ideas of the English, the, 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 the English Football Association has this so-called fit and proper test. Actually, that it shows, I'm not saying it's a perfect instrument, because if you see how it works out in practice, there's a lot to improve, but at least you have something and you have to start when you create awareness, you have to talk to the, to the clubs, you have to talk to the agents, you have to, and of course, many of them are not inclined immediately because they, to share their ideas with you and to, to go along. But at the same time, they are aware that in the end, it's very bad for the reputation as such the moment that, well, I think the example, and maybe can Roland can elaborate on that, the moment that you have a, a cycling industry which was completely um, overwhelmed by, by doping somehow, many people were aware of it. He referred to the code of silence, the, the walls of silence. So for many, for, for quite a long time, many, many people who were actually aware of what was going on, including the journalists that actually were there in the, in the, in the peloton, but also it's related to football. We, have we have the signals we get, but who's who's really willing to reveal things? And of course, you always have to take into account you do not want to damage people without any good reason. But I think we have some interesting cases, at least to discuss it. But anyway, I think that's where it all starts. Thank you so much. Uh, uh, um, Dr. Spavins, did you want to make any comments to that? Um, yes. Um, yeah, I, th I think that... Um... The issue of raising awareness is actually uh, on, on two different levels. So on the one hand, um, we have uh, amateur football clubs in the Netherlands who are actually good willing, yeah, uh, who want to keep out criminals and who are actually uh, trying to prevent uh, criminal infiltration. So they need to be become more aware of the risks and uh, how to actually um, uh, identify a potential uh, criminal sponsor. Uh, so that's something uh, uh, in which, uh, for example, also the football association can play an important role or other sports asso uh, associations or federations who can actually uh, inform uh, uh, the clubs. Uh, uh, there have also been um, uh, meetings organized by the Dutch uh, tax authority, for instance, in which they uh, informed uh, clubs about uh, the risks and uh, how to prevent them. Um, but on the other hand, uh, we also, of course, have uh, football clubs who uh, benefit from criminal sponsors and uh, uh, who don't uh, want to actually do something about it. Uh, because uh, I saw the one question in the uh, in the chat. So uh, how do we actually spot uh, criminal infiltration in football clubs? Well, one way to spot this is because they become incredibly successful overnight. Yeah, because they have uh, much more money, uh, which is uh, sponsored by, by criminals and uh, can buy better players or uh, actually in amateur sports, pay them under the table, basically. Um, so usually um, if a small club who doesn't have a big 
base of members or a big financial base uh, wins the, the, the one championship after the other, then uh, something is probably not completely right, uh, at least uh, most of the times. Um, and then, uh, of course, it is important for um, investigative authorities and also for the uh, uh, sports associations to uh, become aware of this. And um, that's actually, actually a problem in the Netherlands because um, in many cases that we studied, uh, the investigative authorities actually stumbled upon criminal infiltration in sports clubs. Uh, when they started uh, their criminal investigation, for instance, uh, because of drugs or because of other types of crimes, and then discovered that uh, the, their main suspect was also involved in a, a sports club or in a football club. Um, and so um, both... Uh, the clubs need to become more aware uh, as well as the investigative authorities and the uh, sports associations. Thank you so much. Thank you for all of those great comments. So we have a number of questions and comments and we have um, about 12 minutes left. So I'm just gonna start with one that I think is particularly important uh, about illegal betting. And someone made um, the comment about illegal betting in terms of, isn't this a more common format of organized crime that you see in sports? And uh, what, what would um, each of you say to that? So who would like to take that one? Tuan, maybe you are the one who actually did a research on match fixing in the Netherlands and illegal betting. Uh, yes. Um, um, yeah. Um, well, uh, the, the, there's also had, a, the, um, of course, um, one risk of uh, criminal infiltration in sports clubs is that they actually gain some uh, leverage over players or over um, uh, other officials who are involved in the club and uh, use this leverage to uh, manipulate the outcomes of, uh, of the games. So that's, that's an important issue. Um, of course, it all depends on whether uh, 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 sports clubs at a, sport, a certain level are indeed available to bet on. Yeah? For instance, in the Netherlands, in amateur football, is not a problem because uh, uh, there's basically no uh, betting uh, on uh, amateur sports games yet. Uh, this may change next year when the uh, uh, gambling law uh, is uh, is uh, amended. Um, uh, but uh, we must not forget that um, uh, uh, when you uh, differentiate between outsiders um, uh, like organized crime who are not really involved in the club but have some uh, uh, power over players or, or uh, referees, uh, but um, and and can this uh, can use this power to actually manipulate games? Uh, that happens, but uh, in practice, it's far more often people who are insiders in uh, within the clubs. Uh, so um, uh, basically, um, a club manager or a uh, club sponsor has much more influence on a player than uh, someone from outside. So uh, the, the real problem here is the criminal infiltration and not so much the um, uh, organized crime uh, groups that uh, try to manipulate sports games and manipulate betting from outside uh, the clubs. Yeah, if, I, if I may add something to that, what, what John, John just mentioned, I think indeed, of course, there is in the literature, there is a strong linkage between match fixing and, and money laundering. Uh, but indeed, he's making this, this differentiation. I think that's, that's right. What, what I'm mostly concerned about, actually, is that if you look at the, the, the financial shape of most football clubs, it's pretty bad. It's, they are they are in financial need, strong financial need. There aren't that many clubs actually very healthy. And I think, well, we are facing a new crisis. So probably things will get worse. So what's what's happening, and we see it everywhere in Europe, that we see all kinds of foreign investors coming in. And when you look at it from an economic perspective, it doesn't make any sense. You think, why are you investing in something which is, in most cases, not very profitable. In, on the contrary, you, you will lose money. So when you come in from Belarus, Turkey, wherever, 
and suddenly you buy a, not a top club in the Netherlands, but in the second league, what's in it for you? What is your main drive? What are you going to do? Interestingly enough, what you, what you see then, mostly when a foreign investor comes in, there's a complete new team coming in. So there are so many new players coming in, and a lot of old players go out, and it's a carousel. They start playing with players. They start transferring players all around Europe. And they are playing, and in some cases we have evidence, hey, there's something, because what they are working with is criminal money. The money they illegitimately earned somewhere abroad, they invested in the club, they start transferring players, overvaluing, undervaluing, but they use all kinds of systems, and in the end they can show, listen, we have been very successful in trading players, and they can at, at least, they can account for the the money that they have they have earned in the football industry. But what we have forgotten about is that the origins of the money, there was something really wrong with that. I think that is of major concern. If you look at all kinds of football leagues in Europe, lately in Belgium, small clubs, suddenly they are taken over by huge investors. They start investing large sums of money and nobody has a clue where it's coming from. I think that is a real concern. And it has nothing to do in that respect with match fixing or, or, or illegal betting. No, thank you so much for those important comments. So uh, in, the, in the final moments we have left, I'm just going to take this final question and then we'll go, if we have time, to uh, brief final comments from all the panelists. So this is actually, I think, a question. It's a really important question, and I think it's also it could apply to um, either Professor Moreland or um, Professor Nilan's comments uh, today. Uh, what do you think um, about the results of empirical studies on the impact of organized crime on the sports results? So we've talked a lot about other aspects of the sports industry, but what about the actual results of, of sporting events and um, things of that nature. What are your what would be your thoughts on that? They also gave the example of if we take a look at the biggest football competitions in Europe as Champions League, Europa, uh, Premier League. Well, of course, it may influence. Um, um, in the in the end, if you're but now we're talking again. My idea is that we should not only look at those top clubs in those top leagues, especially what's going on in the lower leagues is probably more interesting even. But if we take the top leagues. Of course, we see some examples there. At least it raises questions. I think there are a couple of sessions also during this conference on Russian organized crime. And some people claim when they look at Mr. Abramovich of Chelsea, whether he's a businessman, where his money was coming from originally when he started investing in Chelsea. There are a lot of rumors and allegations. I'm not claiming. So here we see, and he has been able over the years, actually, to build a complete empire, not only with Chelsea, but with a lot of other satellite clubs in Europe are also part of the whole Chelsea network. So in the end, it influences results because you are able, of course, in that respect, also to buy very good players. And it may lead to a situation that you actually become a champion. So indeed, there are situations, but again, uh, in, in most situations where we actually see the money laundering is that most money laundering's Wanderers not only go for the top clubs, but they go for the lower leagues. So we are almost out of time. We have three minutes. So that means a minute each for uh, final comments. So what would be your final words to leave the audience with on this topic and the importance of it? Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I can um, uh, support this. Uh, we, we recently completed a study on uh, different types of amateur sports in the Netherlands and uh, actually uh, criminal infiltration happens in, in all sorts of sports. Uh, but of course, um, yeah, there are some sports in which criminals are more interested. So they probably won't uh, uh, sponsor bridge or, uh, but, uh, <laughs> but um, um, uh, uh, the, the, there are lots of sports in which they're interested and uh, also cycling, but uh, not so much in uh, the cycling teams as well as uh, in organizing the events 
uh, that, that's that's something we um, uh, uh, we have seen them uh, pop up. Um, yeah, but uh, yeah, as a com concluding remark, I would say that um, um, criminals are uh, they tend to be secretive, but they don't hide in their local society. So they do want to be liked. Uh, they do want to be seen, and uh, that's the main reason why they actually want to be involved in uh, uh, in, in sponsoring sports. Uh, it's it's like it's not money laundering as much as it is social laundering. Uh, and yeah, still in uh, criminological research, that's uh, uh, quite an under-researched topic. So um, uh, we do like to, or at least I'd like to do I'd like to see a lot more systematic uh, work in uh, other countries as well. Thank you for that. So definitely a call to research. Okay, uh, final words from uh, Professor Nealon. Yes, well, I think what what our presentations uh, all show that well, we all know sport is entertainment. We all love it. We are intrigued by it. At the same time, uh, and we want our clubs to be champion or our favorite rider to win the Tour de France. So that those are circumstances also why we are sometimes not that critical because we love it. We love the tension. Uh, at the same time, we all know now that legitimate and illegitimate activities actually are entwined in this business. We should really be aware of it. And I think... Indeed, it is some, it's a challenge for, for many, for the clubs, for the associations, also international associations. But at the same time, if you think about FIFA, for instance, we haven't even discussed that, but they are in the middle of a huge corruption affair themselves. So the association that actually should control and regulate is involved in all kinds of shady business itself. That is highly problematic. We have to be aware of it. We cannot turn a blind eye on this because I think it's, it's huge. And I think we just started. So again, I'm, I hope that we actually inspired some of the colleagues in other countries as well and to cooperate and do something together because I think this is a well, it's well worth exploring this area. And I think um, as someone who's, who's also in um, academia, I, I can say we also have a number of students on this conference uh, who are involved in the organizing and, and also who are, who are listening. So I think that this is an area when they're thinking about uh, their studies and they're interested potentially in sports and, and how you combine organized crime with it. I think this is a great topic to take on. So thank you to everyone for your wonderful contributions and to our audience for, for sticking with us uh, for the entire time. And, uh, and I, I wish everyone a wonderful rest of the day, evening, uh, afternoon, wherever you are in the world. And uh, thank you so much again to the organizers for this dynamic conference. You are listening to Sports and Organised Crime. If you'd like to get more information on this topic and the speakers, head over to the conference website, oc24.globalinitiative.net. There you can also find videos of most of the talks, including a number of discussions that are not part of this podcast series. This was the 24-hour conference on Global Organised Crime podcast. I'm Jack Megan Vickers. Thanks for listening.